That's okay. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Sure. Well, while he's looking for one, I will welcome you to the assembly here today. Number 889 will be the song after the lesson. Number 889. We have been studying the history of Christianity here in, in the world. We've gotten here to the banks of America now. And we have covered about 1,700 years. We've covered a lot of material. We don't have time to do a survey of everything we've done so far, so I'll just show you this. We began with the establishment of the church in the period of persecuted Christianity, then imperial Christianity and Christendom, which was the time of the Dark Ages. And then we came to the Reformation, and the Reformation was when some people decided to reform the corruption that was the Catholic Church of the day. We talked about this Reformation and how one of the results of the Reformation was a splintering of Christianity so that you had hundreds of different distinct religious groups and each one of them had a name or a nom as it was called and they became what we call denominations and all these different groups had their different ideas and their different creeds. Martin Luther started a lot of this by nailing his 95 thesis, his 95 objections to Catholicism on the church door where he was a priest in Wittenberg, Germany in the 1500s. That was an amazing, amazing time, and it was a very difficult time. A lot of people lost their lives. What we're going to talk about this morning is the age of restored Christianity. There was an age of reformation and now an age of restoration. And the age of restoration, just like all of these others were marked by specific things, there were four things that marked the age of restoration that we're going to talk about. Number one was a rejection of creeds. Now, do you know what a creed is? A creed is a, a list of doctrines that we believe. Okay, there are many famous creeds, the Westminster Creed, the uh, Apostles' Creed. There are many, many different creeds that are very well known and famous throughout the world. And what happened was that as these different men would arise and they would study the Bible and they would say, you know what? There's some stuff in the Catholic Church that's right, but some stuff that's wrong. And so what you need is the Bible plus here's what the Bible means. And if you really are faithful, you believe the Bible this way. And that was their creed, and everyone who followed them had to agree with that creed, that list of things. And then John Calvin comes along and goes, well, Martin Luther, you know, he converted me through his teaching, but there's some things he wasn't right about. So if you're really a faithful Christian, you'll believe the Bible this way. And you end up with all of these different creeds, all of these different ideas that people say, if you're really a true Christian, you'll believe it the way we do. Now, let me tell you honestly about me. When I was growing up, I kind of had a creed mindset. I did. I'm ashamed to tell you that I believed, and I was never told this by older guys, but I believed either you worshiped with us, 
or you were stupid or you didn't love God. And I really believe that because if you loved God, you'd read the Bible. And if you weren't stupid, you could understand the Bible and you would be worshiping with us. Now, that's kind of the idea behind creeds. You, you understand. You, because many of us felt that way younger when we were younger. And it was a problem. The unity movement, the restoration movement, said, you know what? We don't need creeds. We just need the Bible. I don't need the Bible plus Michael McCorkle telling me what the Bible means. I just need the Bible. Right? Look at this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, not all creeds. Listen, I've changed my mind a whole lot from when I thought I understood it all back when I was young. Because I've learned a lot more through Scripture. If you're right where you were 20 years ago, you're not growing. And you need to be growing. You need to grow in your understanding of Scripture. Listen, we don't need a creed. We don't need someone telling us what to believe. We need the Bible. Listen, I've known Nathan over 50 years. Can you believe that, Nathan? I remember as a little kid, Nathan and I playing together. I don't know if you remember that, but I do. My dad held a meeting out here, and I remember staying. I don't know if we stayed at their house, but I remember first time I ever saw the video game Pong was at their house. <laughs> I love Nathan. I respect Nathan greatly. I don't want Nathan writing a creed for me. I don't want it. I don't need it. I don't want the elders at our congregation in Denton writing a creed for me. I need the Bible. I don't need what a lot of other people are telling me that I need to believe about the Bible. The restoration movement said we just need God's Word. We don't need man-written creeds. Number two was a restoration of the gospel. The idea that you can become a Christian anywhere, anytime with just the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at this. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. During the restoration movement, men began to teach this again. They began to teach that you're saved by belief and baptism. Let me ask you, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to let it change your life and to live His way instead of your way? Have you been baptized into Jesus Christ? You can do that. You can do that today. You can do that anytime, anywhere in the world. You can become a Christian. There was a restoration of this. According to the Catholics, you couldn't do it anytime, anywhere. And it wasn't about this. According to the Calvinists, you may or may not be saved. It just depends on whether God wants to save you or not. But according to the Bible, anyone, anywhere, with an open and honest heart can have their lives changed. And it doesn't matter about the people around you. It doesn't matter about your circumstances or your history. You, with an honest heart and an open Bible, can be eternally saved and go to heaven. That was a wonderful thing to be restored. Another thing that marks the restoration was the restoration of church government. 
You remember we talked about this passage in Philippians chapter 1 where he says a church was designed with saints, bishops, and deacons. Saints is not Christian's hall of fame. Saints is you. Saints is all of us. Anyone who's a Christian is a saint. And the congregations had deacons who served and elders who guided and oversaw the flock. And every congregation was that way. But there wasn't a big bishop over the state of Texas. There was just each individual congregation in the Bible. It had changed. It hadn't been that way for a thousand years or more. But people restored this. They began to teach that. And you know what? I live in Denton, Texas. Well, I live close to Denton. I worship in Denton, Texas. We have elders in Denton, Texas. You know, they did not send me with rules for the church in Pampa when I got here. And if they had, I know what your elders would have done with those rules. Because there's no authority beyond a local congregation other than Jesus Christ. That was restored during the Restoration Movement. Finally, the big call of the Restoration was unity. This was born out of division and diversity. Jesus said this, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's you and me. He's praying and his apostles are there and he says, Father, I'm not praying just for these guys. I'm praying for everyone who's going to believe on me through their word. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Oneness, unity, being together instead of divided. Now, I was thinking about this. How do you suppose we could unify all the churches in Pampa? And there's a bunch of them. I don't know how many. But do you think it would be possible to unify all the churches in Pampa? Can you imagine the impact on the city of Pampa if everyone who claimed Christ was unified? Can you imagine the impact that could be had? How could we do that? How could we unify all Christians, all people who claim Christ in Pampa, Texas? Well, there's several things we could do. One thing you could do is you could appoint one man as the grand poobah of the church in Pampa, Texas, and everyone has to do what he says or we kill him. We could do, would that unify the churches? Pretty much. Do what he says. It's a place of unity, union, but it's not a place of agreement. And I say, well, no, that's not a good idea. The Catholics tried that for years. That's not a good idea. Maybe what we could do is just say, it doesn't matter what you believe. You just believe anything you want to believe. Bring your own God. And then we could all just tolerate every... Is that a good idea? You know, if everyone in town would agree to do that and say, it doesn't matter what you believe, could we be unified? But what would you have? You wouldn't have anything. You know, those answers were not good answers. And the restorationists, the people who lived during this period of time, who were seeing churches split and so much division, they looked around and they said, there's got to be a different and better answer. And their different and better answer was, let's do away with all the creeds and let's just do what the Bible says. And let's all agree to do that. Now, truth is, lots of people won't agree to do that. But the people who do agree to do that, we can have unity. We can have unity based on the Scriptures. 
Now, there was division from Europe that came here with the settlers. Each colony had its distinct religions. In fact, here's a list I found of when there were officially state-sponsored religions in each of the colonies. Somebody says, well, now wait a minute. Doesn't the Constitution or the amendment, the first one, say, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof? In other words, separation of church and state, right? First Amendment. I want you to know that applied to individuals, not to states, when that was written. States did sponsor religion. You can look back. Virginia had state-sponsored religion for 224 years. New York had it for 225 years. Massachusetts for 204 years. And we're not going to go through this whole list, but there was state-sponsored religion in America. And there were places that if you weren't a part of the state-sponsored religion, you couldn't own land and you couldn't vote. Now that's the kind of division that our brethren were facing and dealing with when the restoration movement was coming about. As the frontier spread, so did the settlers' religious convictions. You had Lutherans and Methodists and Baptists and Amish. And by 1800, there were 125 distinct denominations. That's a bunch. It's a whole bunch of distinct groups. You might say, well, we want to be a part of a group that doesn't have division. I want you to know that every religious group in the world has divisions. That's true of Islam. It's true of Buddhist. It's true of Hindu. It's true of every Christian religion. Here's a list up here, the Catholics. You might say, well, I hear some people say, let's be Catholic because they go all the way back and they're all, you've no, they're not unified. 1054, there was a huge split in the Catholic Church that we didn't have time to go into detail about. But there's Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and Roman Catholic. Not only that, there are 64 distinct denominations. Any of you see the movie The Passion of the Christ made by Mel Gibson? He's a Catholic, kind of. He's a kind of a splinter group of Catholic. Catholics are split. Don't let anyone tell you they're not. Baptist, they're Southern Baptist and Free Will Baptist and Primitive Baptist and American Baptist and on and on and on and on. There's lots and lots of different kinds of Baptist churches. Church of Christ. Well, churches of Christ, we're all, you think we're all together and not split? You think there's splits in the Church of Christ? Yeah. If you know anything about it at all, you know there's splits in the Church of Christ. We got churches of Christ that began together as Church of Christ. They're first Christian and disciples of Christ. You ever heard of those? Those were originally all unified with, with us, with churches of Christ. And there's divisions over all kinds of different things. We're going to talk about some of that a little bit more this afternoon. Now, there's people that will knock on your door, and they will tell you, we are the true religion because we're not divided. You've talked to them. Latter-day Saints, we call them Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And they'll both tell you that. We're united. We're not like rest of Christianity. We're not divided. That's just not true. That's a lie. They are divided. You might say, well, why would they say that? I'll tell you why they say that. They say that because if you disagree with them, they excommunicate you and you're not a Christian anymore and you don't count. So it's just us. There are no divisions because everybody that divides isn't really one of the faithful. 
you see, there's tremendous division. Why do you think this happens? Why do you think there's division? There's division because of pride, because of humans, because of misunderstandings that happen. We don't have time to go into all those reasons, so I won't get, go down that rabbit trail this morning. But I'll tell you this, the Reformation, the idea of reforming is to make changes in something in order to improve it. And that was Martin Luther's idea. Let's take this old corrupt Catholic church and let's make some changes and improve it. Let's make it better. Restoration was, no, let's don't take what we've got that's corrupt and try to modify it. But instead, let's bring back a previous right. Bring back something that was correct in the past. And let's restore that instead of trying to just reform what we've got. You know, this idea of restoration is not new. It didn't just start in America. It didn't just start in the 1700s. It started a long time ago, and it's not a one-step process. You don't just get your Bible and go, okay, let's restore it and, and understand everything. You don't. We've already talked about some people that I, in my mind, call restorers because I believe their effort was to restore. One of the guys was Erasmus. Erasmus tried to restore the Bible to people. People didn't have a Bible. They didn't have access to it. They didn't have an accurate Bible. Let us therefore with our whole heart covet this literature. Let us embrace it. Continually occupy ourselves with it. Fondly kiss it at length. Let us die in its embrace and be transformed in it. Wow. You think that's someone that loved the Bible? Do you agree with that? I do. It's someone who said, you know what? This, these are the words of life. Don't we sing about that? Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Do you mean that when you sing it? This guy was trying to restore something to people that had been lost for hundreds of years. And that's access to the Word of God. And I want to I just say this. It blows my mind to think about the people who died so we could have a Bible, and they sit on our shelves covered with dust because we don't have time to pick them up. Doesn't that blow your mind to think about that? Martin Luther, unless it can be shown me by the Scriptures how I am wrong, my conscience is bound by the Scriptures, I cannot and will not recant. His idea was to restore the gospel, and he got partway there. He understood some things, and he got people out of some of the jams that the Catholic Church had put them in for generations. I respect that. I don't know if I'd have the courage to do some of the things. But you know, none of these guys were perfect. You know, Martin Luther did this, but he also had his creed. And you know what Erasmus said about that? Erasmus said this to Martin Luther. He said, you stipulate that we should not ask for or accept anything but Holy Scripture. But you do it in such a way as to require that we permit you to be its sole interpreter, renouncing all others. Thus, the victory will be yours if we allow you to be not the steward, but the Lord of the Holy Scriptures. So Martin Luther stood up and he said, you don't need the Pope, you need the Bible. And here's what the Bible means, and if you don't believe that, <laughs> you're not really saved, you're not really a Christian. Now he was trying, but he was, 
he, was, he had some mistakes, some problems. Do you have error in your life? Do you have mistakes in your life? Have you done stuff that you go, oh, man, I was so knuckle-headed when I did that? Is that true of you? Be honest. It is of me. All these guys had their error and their mistake. Restoration of biblical authority. Zwingli comes along and says, you must drop all that human learning and learn God's will directly from his own word. Something else I agree with. Learn it from God's word and not somewhere else. Tyndale said, all belief and practice should find its origin in the Bible alone. So we have a restoration here of the Bible, a restoration of the gospel, a restoration of many things. You know what was missing in a lot of places was a restoration of Christian morality. There was a group of people who tried to do that. We called them Puritans. A church rightly formed according to the prescript of God's word. Is that what you want here? It's what I want. They said this, the word of God contains the directions of all things pertaining to the church. Yea, of whatsoever things can fall into any part of a man's life. Now what that means, that's old English talk for the Bible's all you need. It'll answer all your questions. It'll tell you how to live. It'll tell the church how to function. That's what you need is the Bible. Amen. We agree with that, don't we? Because these people were working for the restoration. A guy named Thomas Campbell said it this way, and I love the way he said it. Where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. We don't add anything to what the Bible commands people. We don't lay any burdens on people that the Bible doesn't. And we don't omit anything that God says is necessary and responsible for us. A guy named Graves said this, The church of Christ himself organized in Jerusalem is an authoritative model to be patterned after until the end of time. Catholic and various Protestant sects were originated and set up many ages after the ascension of Christ, and they are therefore not divine but human institutions. He said, if you got a church that was started in Waco, Texas by Vernon Howell, who called himself David Koresh, it's the wrong church. Because Jesus started his church a long time ago. And we don't need new, different churches. We must use the Bible alone as our guide in all things in the church. I heard a guy named Jerry McCorkle say that in 2002. Does that sound like this other stuff people have been saying? They were saying the same kinds of things we are, and they were working step by step to get to that same place. And you know what happened is all over the world, it wasn't just in America, all over the world you had situations where people had honest hearts, and now they had Bibles. And when an honest heart opens a Bible and listens and reads and understands, the seed of God's Word is sown in their heart. And you know what happens? You get Christians. You get Christians only. People who are just servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can happen anywhere, anytime in the whole world. It always results in Christians. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether those things were so. Those are the two things you've got to have you got to have an open mind and an open Bible. Now, if you sit here today and you're bored to death and you have no interest in learning about God, 
An open Bible is not going to do you any good. You got to have an open heart. If you've got an open heart and you want to learn, but you never pick up your Bible and you just listen to people, listen to podcasts and YouTube guys, you're not going to learn the truth. You've got to have an open mind and you've got to have an open Bible. And those two things always produce Christianity. This has always been true. You know, we've talked about the Catholic Church for years and the Reformation and all of that. And one of the things that we've kind of stood in the aisles and discussed, well, you know, during all this time there were Christians, you know. There were people who were really, truly doing what the Bible says, even though the big outward organizations that call themselves Christian were not did you know that's true? There have been people, we were trying to restore something that's always been here. I want to very quickly go through some of these people with you. In the year 141, in the east of Cambridge, or yeah, Cambridgeshire, Britain, many people were baptized in the River Cam. They call it Cambridge because there is a river over, or a bridge over this River Cam. It's Cam Bridge. And in the year 141, there were many people baptized in that river. You can find historical record of that in this small village called Grotta. Many people were baptized. In 141, that's a long time ago. John Cassian lived in 360 to 435 in the south of France. And he taught salvation is through Christ. And it's available to all who ask through free will choice, and he rejected the teachings of Augustine. Lived the same time Augustine did, and he rejected those teachings. And he taught the same thing you and I teach, the same thing we believe, because he got it out of the Bible. 422, the Catholic bishop Germanus complained about the British church. He said they practice believers' baptism and reject the authority of the Pope and other Catholic doctrines. This was the year 422 right in the middle of some ugly stuff going on in history with the Catholic Church, right? The Priscillians the, in 5th century Spain, they said this, we will not baptize babies because they cannot have faith. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that? They were persecuted. These people were persecuted for teaching the same thing about baptism you and I teach today. You go on to the 800s, uh, there's, well, there's a painting from the 800s showing a slaughter of the Pollocans. They called them Pollocans because these people defended their beliefs from the writings of Paul in the Bible. That's why they called them Pollocans. They rejected infant baptism. They taught that faith was a prerequisite to adult baptism. They called them publicans in England. And they slaughtered, as best estimates we can find, close to 100,000 of these people in the 500s. Do you think the church was really there all the time? You better believe it was there all the time. In Richborough, Britain, there's an open-air baptistry for adult immersion. That has been there. It was built by the Romans. It has been there for centuries. Why would they do that? Because they taught and believed the same thing we do because it comes from the Bible. Here's a place over in Britain. It's called St. Millen's Well. By St. Millen, and this person was given sainthood many, many years later. This says was the first to baptize by immersion in Britain. Used this well in the 6th century. 
The town's council restored the well in 1987. Now, we know that they weren't the first ones to baptize by immersion because we can read about it in the Bible, right? Okay? But these people in the 6th century, there's a well there where they were baptizing people by immersion, just like you and I do today. There was Berignarius, Bar <laughs> I'm going to slaughter some of these names, of Tours in 999 through 1010 in France. He was an archdeacon and he was treasurer of the Angers Cathedral. He rejected transubstantiation and infant baptism and he was excommunicated by the Pope and killed because he read the Bible and he taught and believed what it said. There's Peter of Bruce about 1090 in the southern of France. He was burned alive at St. Giles. Why? Because they referred to themselves as Christians and appealed to, for a return to the authority of the Scriptures and believers' baptism. They're not the only ones. Arnold of Brescia was executed by burning under the authority of the prefect of Rome. That's the Roman Catholic Church in 1152. And his ashes were thrown in the Tiber River. Why? Because he believed the same stuff Peter Bruce believed, which is the same stuff you and I believe. In 1118, there was Gregory Grimm. In 1147, there was Henry of Toulouse. And in the 12th century, there were in Italy a guy named Peter Waldo. Oxford, Britain in 1157 to 1162, we find through history that there were many people who were Christians. They initially had about 30, and then there were 80 in 12th century France. These are all your brothers and sisters in Christ who believed the same things you and I did while all this other mess was going on. And you know what happened to them? They were persecuted for believing and practicing the things that the Bible said. These heretics, as they were called, usually were united in these beliefs. One, they were autonomous. They didn't have big organizations over the different groups. Number two, they believed in baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. They met prior to the Anabaptists before the Anabaptist movement began. They were pre-Reformation. They saw themselves as the true church of Christ, and they denied the need for holy places. They said, you don't need a cathedral. You can worship Jesus under a tree if a group of you are there and love him and want to do what the Bible says, you can do that. And you can be saved and you can come to Christ through saving, obedient faith and baptism. And they were called heretics and they were hunted and they were slaughtered and they were burned. The Waldensians and the Lollards, the Lollards were the first ones to be known by the name Church of Christ widely in Britain. And they've been dated to meeting in Oxford in the 11, around 1157, elsewhere you find records of them meeting in 1390 and in Hillcliffe, Wales in 1417. They were around. Your brothers and sisters were around. Jesus prayed for this unity. We've read this verse alone. Do you think Jesus wanted unity? Jesus wanted unity. Jesus' people have always existed and there's always been a false church in front of them or above them, or around them. There's always been that. You know, when you read in the Bible, do you think Israel were all faithful to God? But you know what? In Israel, you know what there always was? There was always a remnant. There was always a piece 
of the big that was really true and really faithful. There was always a remnant. There's always been a remnant and there will always be a remnant of people who will love God and will obey his word and who will willingly and gloriously be willing to give their lives for him if that is necessary. So this restoration movement here in the United States, it breaks out all over. you got all these different guys, and I'm going to briefly mention a couple of them to you, that shaped things that we do and believe today. One was James O'Kelly. He was a preacher in the Republican Methodists. And in 1794, the suggestion of this guy named Rice Haggard, and if, if you want an assignment, let me give you an assignment. Read about Rice Haggard. There's not a lot about him, but he just shows up over and over and over in all these restoration movements. He's just mentioned as being one of the men there, one of the men there. He suggested, instead of calling ourselves Republican Methodists, let's just call ourselves Christians. I can remember growing up, sometimes people would ask me about my religion. they say, well, what are you? And I'd say, I'm a Christian. they go, yeah, I know, but what kind of a Christian are you? What kind of Christian? I'm just a Christian. Rice Haggard said, let's just call ourselves Christians. We don't have to call ourselves Republican Methodists. Let's just call ourselves Christians. Elias Smith broke off from the Congregationalists in New England around 1798 when he published the Gospel Proclamation and preached the Gospel in New England. This guy just began to preach and teach the same things that we read out of the Bible. And it says here on my, my slide that he broke off, that was a forceful broke off. They didn't give him a choice. It's like you resign or will resign you okay you resign or we'll fire you well I resign then because he taught these things that were not accepted widely Abner Jones born in April 18th of 1772 in Royalton Maryland he was converted to the Baptist Church in 1793 he studied the Bible began teaching he rejected Calvinism and in 1801 he established a free congregation claiming to be Christians only they were no longer under the auspices of any other particular religious group he said we're just Christians now you may have heard of this guy Barton W. Stone if you've read much about the Restoration, he plays a big part. In fact, there are descendants of this man in the church in Purcell, Oklahoma, where my brother-in-law is an elder. In that congregation, there are Stone family in that congregation who are descendants of this guy. He was born in Port Tobacco, Maryland, before the United States became the United States. And he was a Methodist preacher. And guess what? He got converted to be a Presbyterian preacher. He was converted from Methodist to Presbyterian. And then on June 28, 1804, with several other preachers, he drafted what they call the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. I wish we had time to read that and go into that. You go find that, Google that, and read it. You'll agree with almost everything in there. The things that he says. This guy, Raccoon John Smith. I love reading about Raccoon John Smith. He was... <clears throat> a contrary old country bumpkin of a preacher. But he did such tremendous good things. He was so effective. Um, 
Alexander Campbell, who was a very educated man, said about Raccoon John Smith, he said, he's the only man I ever met that an education would hurt. Because <laughs> he was not an educated man, but he knew the Bible, okay? He was Calvinist in belief, but then he began to read the writings of Alexander Campbell. And he was converted out of Calvinism to the Bible. And he began to read and study the Bible. And this guy had courage. This guy had had something going on. I mean, he wasn't afraid to say things the way he believed. There, one of my favorite stories is a woman in the community had died, and he was a preacher there, and some of her family wanted him to do the funeral. And so he met him at the church, and they were bringing the casket up, and he stopped him out on the yard, and he said, set her down right over there. And they looked around and did, and he said, she never set foot in this building while she was alive. God forbid we'd make her now. She's dead. And they had the funeral in the yard. <laughs> I mean, these were bold people, but they would speak what the Word of God said, and they had courage in that. Raccoon John Smith was an interesting guy. Alexander Campbell and his father Thomas, they're an interesting story. Some of you older members, I count myself as a younger one here today, you may remember Christians, members of the church, being called Campbellites, Okay. That's after this guy, Alexander Campbell. Now, I don't really remember being called a Campbellite, but I've read some of the old debates where they would call us Campbellite water dogs because we believed in baptism and followed Alexander Campbell, supposedly. Thomas Campbell came to America, and he came over here because his health was bad, and he wanted to see if it would help his health to be over here instead of over there. Left his family all back in Ireland and Scotland. He came over here as a Presbyterian preacher, and he began to study his Bible, and he came to the conclusion that Presbyterianism was wrong, and we just needed the Bible. We didn't need John Calvin, and we didn't need Martin Luther, and we didn't need all that. We just needed the Bible. His family was still over in Europe. His son, Alexander, stayed with some people who were restorationists, and they taught him about restoring Christianity to just what the Bible was. They were both independently converted to just following the Bible. Well, when the family finally came over, Thomas Campbell was very nervous about telling his family that he'd left the Presbyterian faith. He was concerned about that. And he said, guys, I need to tell you something. And as he began to explain that, his son Alexander said, Dad, <laughs> me too. And it was a tremendous change. The reason we were identified with Alexander Campbell is because he was a very influential man, highly educated. He had a debate with a guy named Rice where they debated six hours a day for 18 days. You know who was moderator of that debate? A guy named Henry Clay who ran for president of the United States. He was, when he would travel through Washington, D.C., he'd stop and spend the night at the White House with the president. I mean, he was very well-known, very respected, and he taught the same things you and I teach and believe today in large part. And that's why people identified that with us. And here was their call. Here was their cry. They said, in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, and in all things, charity. I think this is our other option for unity. In essentials, unity. You know, there's some things that you just can't believe differently on and be a Christian. You can't deny Jesus was the Son of God and be a Christian. That's an essential. 
You can't misunderstand that and be a Christian. But there are other things that there are opinions about. And different people have different opinions about those things. Halloween. Is it okay to dress your kids up for Halloween and have them run around trick-or-treat? I know good, faithful Christians who believe yes and good, faithful Christians who believe no. There's opinion there. There is not a verse anywhere in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not dress your child as a Toy Story character and go around and collect candy from the neighbors. There's not a verse that says anything like that. It's a matter of judgment. It's a matter of opinion. And Romans 14 talks about this judgment and this opinion. And in those areas, we need to give one another liberty. We need to give people the right to have a different opinion than we have. And finally, in all things charity, I have a good friend that uh, he and I disagree about 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, he says that the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. If someone comes to Christ and then they turn away from Christ and go back to the world, he says the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now, he and I disagree about this, and I'm not going to tell you which one of us believes what. But one of us believes that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. And that if someone has come to Christ and they turn away from Christ and they go back into the world, that there's a different degree of punishment. The other one of us believes that because you've been in Christ and you've left, now there's nothing people have to bring you back in because you already know and it'll be harder to ever bring you back to the Lord. He and I have debated that for 35 years. And we've argued and debated and brought all of our reasons and all of our arguments. And every time we meet, we leave in perfect agreement. You know how we do that? Well, one time I agree with him, and the next time he agrees with me. No, that's not the way we do that. Because <laughs> we don't agree on that. You know how we do that? We are in perfect agreement that the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now, my understanding of that's a little different than his. But the latter end, whatever that means, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. And you know what? He and I can have unity that the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Because it's what God's Word says. And we can have unity on God's Word. We're not going to have unity on all our opinions. We're not going to have unity in all our judgments, but we're going to have unity on the Word of God. And that's the message of the Restoration Movement. Let's just unify on what God's Word says and give people liberty in their opinions. And above all things, you know why he and I do this? Because we love each other. If I hated him, I could draw a line and withdraw from him and say, we're never going to have him at our church. We're never going to use him. We're never going to... I, we could do that if I hated him, but I don't. I love the man. And because I love the man, I'm going to give him liberty in his opinions, and we're going to be united in the essentials. I hope that message speaks to you. It does to me. That's a wonderful message of unity that we can have on the Word of God. I hope you've learned something this morning. And I want to tell you that the message that we talked about of speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent, you today can be right with God. Do you have an open heart? Do you want to know what's true? Do you want to do what's true? No one but you can decide that. Your parents can't decide it for you. 
your girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or children, I can't decide it for you. You yourself have to say, you know what? I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow God. I want to be right with Him. I want to live His way instead of my way. And if you're willing to do that, you today can be baptized into Jesus Christ. And you can lay your head on your pillow tonight knowing that you know that you know that if He comes back tonight, you're going to heaven to be with Him. If you're not right with God, please let us help you today while we stand and sing.